And it was funny because I totally forgotten that we listened to music all the time, like all the time. Yeah. It was like a soundtrack to our lives. Hey everybody, welcome to the Gaudi Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Pamako. Today we have a really great show for you guys. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Francis Wilkins from the Elphinstone Institute here at the University of Aberdeen. The interview is going to include a little bit of Desert Island Discs as well, so stick around for that. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we'll see you on the other side. Hey everyone, uh, my guest today is Dr. Francis Wilkins from the Elphinstone Institute here at the University of Aberdeen. Uh, welcome to the program. How are you today? Thanks, uh, Josh. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine today. It's actually stopped raining here on Sky, where I live. So um, that's that's great. It's been quite a hard winter so far. Yeah, most definitely. Well, it's good uh, to have you here. Uh, I do want to explain something to our listeners. This is a new feature we're doing here on the podcast. A good friend of mine, Holly, suggested that we do a Desert Island Discs format for some of our interviews. Uh, and as an American, uh, Desert Island Discs was quite a foreign concept to me. Uh, but I was assured that it is quite popular here in the UK. Uh, so we're going to give it a go. It's going to be slightly abbreviated because, again, uh, students in the university, let's be fair, we don't really have long attention spans. Uh, and my guest, Dr. Wilkins, has chosen four tracks to take with her to the island, and I'm looking forward to discussing them with her. Uh, so first off, uh, Dr. Wilkins, why don't you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, who are you? What do you do? And where are you from? So I, um, my name is Frances Wilkins. I am a senior lecturer in ethnomusicology at the Elphinstone Institute. And for anyone who hasn't heard of the Elphinstone Institute, we're a, we're a small, mostly postgraduate uh, department uh, within uh, the School of Language and Literature, Music and Visual Culture. Um, and and uh, um, we focus on the study and promotion of Northeast and Northern Scottish culture and traditions um, via um, ethnology, folklore, and ethnomusicology. Um, I'm from, uh, actually, originally, uh, my, my family were from Brighton in, in the south of England. Uh, my dad was a vicar, so we tended to move around a bit. And I grew up uh, mostly in the southwest of England, in Wiltshire and Dorset, um, before my mum got a job in Shetland when I was 16. And we, we ended up moving up there and living there for about seven years. And uh, yeah, I've always had a connection with the northeast of Scotland ever since. In fact, I've lived in Scotland now for, for most of my life. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So obviously I'm assuming um, if your dad being a vicar and all was growing up, was music always a part of that? Obviously maybe with some church music involved, was music a big part of your life growing up? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. I was actually funny enough. Um, so because he was a vicar, I actually ended up uh, going to boarding school from the age of nine. So <laughs> I wasn't particularly connected with the place I lived, but uh, funnily enough, a couple of weeks ago, um, my old school friends from when I was a teenager in high school um, reconnected on, on WhatsApp. Uh -huh. <laughs> and there uh, 14, 14 of us girls in, oh a, my. in a boarding house. It was actually, it was a, it was a mixed school. It was a, you know, the boys, boys mm -hmm. and girls in the mm -hmm. school, but um, we had a boarding house. And, and it was funny because I totally forgotten that we listened to music all the time, like all the time. Yeah. It was like a soundtrack to our lives. It was like, meant everything to us like literally we spent our entire lives listening to to music mm -hmm. and hanging out of our windows making like mixtapes for each other oh my okay yes. so 
we spent a lot of time making mixtapes and listening to all sorts of music, like everything from Porter's Head to Lenny Kravitz to the Beatles to the Beach Boys to the Orb to yeah. Tentacles, you name it. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it was a really, really influential part of my life. I wouldn't say I was particularly involved in church music, although obviously I grew up singing mm-hmm. a lot of hymns. I you know, I went to a school where we had to go to church on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, that was all kind of there as well, definitely. But I wouldn't have mm-hmm. particularly yeah. participated more than having having been forced to attend a church yeah. on Sunday. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So uh, when I was reading your, bio, by, uh, your, your, your biography bit on uh, the university's website, uh, it's quite interesting. So in addition to teaching and lecturing and researching, you actually are a professional musician. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, um, yeah, so when I, after I moved to Shetland, I, uh, I discovered traditional music in a really big way. Like that was the one thing we didn't listen to at school, particularly was folk music. It was mostly indie, um, mm-hmm. rock, whatever, you name it, but not really, didn't really touch on traditional music. And I didn't play music. Like I learned the piano at school, but that was about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Shetland, I remember at the age of 17, I think it was, um, being given a ticket to the Shetland Folk Festival by my sister for my birthday and I went along and it just totally it was mind-blowing really Mm -hmm. it was like totally changed my life at the time because it was just such amazing music that I was listening to and this whole sort of social scene that I'd never known anything about and I just remember suddenly listening to all this music and just being exposed to all this music that I'd never come across before like a lot of Gaelic um stuff and a lot of yes I mean obviously the Shetland there's so many musicians in Shetland all playing all sorts of things uh, especially fiddles accordions and so on so um that really got me into um, and my boyfriend at the time was a guitarist um um so it got me into going out to the pub going to sessions being amongst like a lot of people mm-hmm. staying up until I don't know like 10 in the morning sometimes yeah. playing tunes in people's yeah. kitchens and in the pub and all that kind of thing so yeah that's how I got into playing music and I took up the concertina um, and very soon sort of um, we formed a band and it became actually a bit of an, a way to escape Shetland at the time yeah. because I was kind of I was living I didn't go to university straight away I didn't go to university till I was 23 mm-hmm. um, so I was and I loved living in Shetland like it was it was an amazing time um but at the same time I was kind of doing quite a few sort of manual jobs sort yeah. of jobs that weren't being paid that much and wasn't it was pretty skint at that point in my life so music became a kind of way to see the world which I wouldn't yeah. do otherwise so you know we got into going to folk clubs getting you know I, I organized a lot of tours in England and Scotland really getting to know Britain in you know, through folk clubs and folk festivals yeah. Yeah. and other places as well. You went, we went to Norway and Denmark and, Nor- and various other places too. Um, and yeah, and that's been part of my life ever since. So I've been, um, I, I went to London to, to study. I went to the School of Oriental African Studies to study music. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, um, after, yeah, it, it's always, it's it's always, I've been involved in various bands ever since. And actually coming back to Aberdeen, I did my PhD in Aberdeen at the Elphinstone Institute. Right. And coming back, um, I just sort of, I think it was a way of coping with a PhD. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. To, I'm sure you've all been to the Blue Lamp or heard mm-hmm. at least. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, and going out to, I was going to like three or four music sessions a week, meeting loads of musicians. And yeah. 
um, started playing in Kaylee bands like Dance Macabre was one and Cabrac and <clears throat> a few different ones and then playing um, through that playing in a duo with Claire White who's a fiddler from Shetland and we managed to do quite a lot of we got really into doing tours so we'd always do one or two tours yeah. a year um, abroad and it was just really a, like the most amazing way of seeing the world yeah oh, that's and, brilliant um, so yeah it, it got me through my PhD that is <laughs> very good awesome <laughs> great so let's turn to your first musical selection uh, which you have uh, selected for us uh, what is what is the song that you picked and why is it important to you Okay, so this is um, a track called Bratach Banner, which is a Gaelic name, and it means like the light-coloured flag, the fair flag, um, and it's uh, it's by a group called Mouth Music. Now, um, yeah, so when I went to the Shetland Folk Festival that first time, I remember going, uh, we, we went to the house, the flat at the time of Alan Longmuir, who's a real stalwart of the Shetland Folk Festival, and his flat was where all the parties happened. So, <laughs> um, I, I just yeah, sort of good, spent good. the week weekend sort of hanging out with these folkies in the flat and um just this is the cd this was the cd mm -hmm. that was playing and i was so blown away by this music i just i'd never heard anything like it before i'd never heard gaelic um and i it, i mean to me it still kind of uh just sounds just just so exciting and fresh um and i remember i went back to school you know went back down to D wiltshire which is where my school was and went straight to wh smith and ordered the tape very good yes, <laughs> and yes. that's how we bought music so yeah yeah, so yeah back, in <laughs> <laughs> back in the day back in the day so this yeah. is banner by mouth music <laughs> That was Pratik Bada by Mouth Music. Right. So let's just talk about quickly um, what your role is at the university. So your official title is uh, Senior Lecturer in Ethnomusicology. And for those of us who aren't as enlightened as some, what is ethnomusicology? Uh, it's a very big word. And uh, I understand it's a bit contested, as most big words are. Uh, so what is ethnomusicology and uh, what, how do you study it, I guess, is the question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, I'd never heard of ethnomusicology before I sort of suddenly found myself doing it. Um, I went to SOAS in London to study world music, which mm -hmm. is what the name of the course was. And the reason why I did that was because I played the concertina and I right. wanted to study music. Um, but as as you know as you know like most music courses don't really have concertina as part of their curriculum yeah, yeah. Um, you know if you want to go and study classical music it's not really it's not a classical instrument so I had two choices I had Newcastle and London at SOAS um, and 
I, I just I, I just really wanted to go to London because I was living in Shetland. I've been mm-hmm. there for a few years and I really wanted to see the big city. Of course, so I went, yeah. to, yeah. I went to SOAS to study world music and it was it was um, it was amazing. Like we were just that I, I hadn't realized that the whole department was eth- that were ethnomusicologists, which was basically people who study music and culture and as okay. culture. Okay. So, um, so people, it's a bit like, I mean, ethnomusicology is a bit like anthropologists, you know, they go to a place wherever it is and they study the music um, within its kind of cultural right. um, setting and, uh, and, and look at the music in context, really, you know, as part of yeah. society, as part of culture. So, um, so the people, you know, who there was experts in African music, Asian music, um, Indian classical music, um, uh, Islamic music, uh, Cuban music, um, yeah, all over the world. Most of the <laughs> most of the non-Western world was covered by right. the specialists, and it was it was That's fascinating. Really, yeah, yeah, it was a really exciting time. I mean, I, I I got I was just sort of exposed to lots and lots of different kinds of music, um, and became uh, really into the research side of it, uh, which of course is is what I focused on so I did I did quite a few research projects as part of the degree mm-hmm. mostly actually I was really encouraged to do research projects in Shetland music and, right. and okay. Gaelic Gaelic singing so I ended up doing my dissertation on Gaelic singing um and that was uh that was great um and so that that kind of let then when I left university like everybody else didn't know what to do with my life and yeah. ended up um <laughs> going to Poland because it was cheap to get there and they also um I did a CELTA course and ended up teaching mm-hmm. English in Poland wondering what on earth I was going to yeah. do um thinking that I might just go and live in Poland and teach English for the rest of my life and then um a few months later uh someone Ian Russell from the Elphinstone Institute um I got in touch with him because I was looking at PhDs just not really seriously but just seeing what was out there and saw that they were advertising one um, and I got in touch and the deadline was like the following day. And I thought, oh, that's never going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. But I did get in touch with him and he got back to me and said, look, if you're really serious about doing a PhD, I've got this project um, on um, sacred singing traditions in Northeast Scotland. Mm-hmm. Would you like to be a, PhD, be a PhD student? Would you like to do it? And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if I want to go to Aberdeen and do that. But that is fair. at the same time, <laughs> you know, I thought well maybe I do want to do a PhD and it was a studentship and it was like an amazing opportunity so mm-hmm. I decided I changed my mind well I was thinking actually maybe it would be worth um just introducing that second track because the second yeah. track I chose um r- relates straight back to my time at SOAS um and it's uh, it's a track called Yamore by Salif Keita and um this is the first piece of music I heard in my I did a I did a module on African music uh, taught by Lucy Duran, who is 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 like an amazing mm-hmm. whirlwind of a person who has she's just done so much. It's amazing. You know, she's um, she if, if anyone's heard World Roots on Radio 3, she's a radio presenter. She's a DJ. She's a musician. She's an incredible academic um, and has an amazing knowledge of African music, West African music. Um, she's produced a lot of CDs by the likes of Tumani Diabate and other people. Um, and I remember the first uh, lecture I sat in on the African music course she introduced us to Salif Keita and she played this this music this track and it was so interesting because actually this really got me to uh, get, sort of 
I'd never really learned about Africa or African history or yeah. anything. It, it was just a way to sort of, it really opened my eyes to African history, um, colonialism, um, all the different sort of cultural influences in, in, in Africa and also to all this, I mean, this Salaf case is from Mali. Mali's got amazing music, like mm. amazing musicians. And, and this was an inter really interesting track because it's got three languages in it. It's got uh, Malian, but it's also got um, French and English and it sort of shows all that kind of history right. in this one yeah. track, which is really interesting. <laughs> You were listening to Yamore by Salif Kaita. Um, moving on then, um, you have done a lot of research uh, in different areas and field work. Uh, what is something that you're currently researching uh, that you would like to share with us? Is there anything in particular that you're focusing on right now? Yeah, so since 2018, uh, I've been doing research that my PhD was looking at the music, sacred musical traditions in Northeast Scotland. So particularly gospel singing in the fishing communities mm -hmm. um, and how that related to community and identity and occupation, um, how right. it sort of fitted in with with the community. And um, and then I went away and I, I did research into other areas, specifically fiddle music and dance in James Bay in Canada, Northern Canada. Um, but in 2018, I think after realizing that just actually going to Canada is is quite, it becomes increasingly difficult, especially now that I've, I've got kids as well, you know, it's just yeah. sort of harder to go on long research trips on your own to places. Um, and because I live in Skye, I live in Skye and commute to Aberdeen um, for work. So mm -hmm. uh, I decided that I wanted to do a comparable project looking at sacred singing traditions in, in the West Highlands and the Western Isles, okay. Okay. which is much more doable and and Certainly. really interesting as well because it's so different they've got such a different um history to to the northeast and the music is totally different the language is different the uh the religious sort of institutions are different mm -hmm. so so i've been doing that since 2018 um and uh yeah i'm just starting actually on a british academy uh research fellowship for the Very next good. year to to really focus on that project very good and i'm assuming does your third track play into that research as well yeah that's right yeah so one of the things that I found really interesting uh, about Gaelic sacred singing um is I mean there's lots lots of different types you know there's obviously the Catholic tradition and the Presbyterian tradition right. and one tradition that is totally unique to to the Gaelic speaking world is Gaelic psalm singing um if you haven't heard it I'm not going to play a track of it a congregation singing it just now but if you haven't heard of it there's there's lots on youtube and it's really unique i mean it sounds really uh, so different to anything else you would hear um but um one thing that i've found really interesting is that gallic psalmody 
is on the decline. There are less people singing. Right. If, you go to, if you went to a church in 1960, you would find you know over a thousand people in a congregation singing Gallic psalmody. And um, today, you know, you'd probably find 30 um, max. And you know, mm -hmm. most of the, most of these uh, services are sort of dwindling at the moment. There might be a revival at some point. Um, but what I found really interesting is this kind of secularization of this music. It's kind of like the way um, like people have taken Gaelic psalmody and used it in outside the church context. Right. To, um, and it's become there, there are quite a lot of musicians and composers who are who are taking the the psalmody or recordings of the psalmody or reinventing the psalmody in some way, maybe transferring it onto another instrument or or you know sort of exploring it um, right, in yeah. different ways. Um, and one person who explored it through um, a field recording actually of a couple of ladies singing back in the sixties, I think uh, that someone from the School of Scottish Studies recorded was um, someone called Martin Bennett, who is a a uh, really innovative multi-instrumental uh, composer, performer, um, and was very into the kind of dance scene in Edinburgh back in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and he took this archive recording um, of, I think it was Psalm 72 uh, in Gaelic, just these two ladies singing. And he also um, used um, a translation of that Psalm. So translating back from the Gaelic to the English mm -hmm. and asked uh, the, the folk singer, Michael Mara to recite, to, to read this Psalm out. So on the track, you've got all this kind of dance beats in the background, all this kind of really interesting sort of techno type stuff going right, on. Yeah. And then you've got Michael Mara reading out this Psalm translated back from the Gaelic to the English. And then later on in the track, a little bit later, you hear these ladies' voices coming in. It's a really interesting, effect <laughs> yeah i was listening to it uh and it was it was quite fascinating to see almost like a, it was a very interesting kind of combination of a genres which you really wouldn't expect but um yeah it was it was quite good i liked it yeah <laughs> that was good yeah very innovative at the time oh, indeed yes no one had really been done anything like that before so it was especially in sort of scottish traditional folk music so. yeah the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. You are listening to Liberation by Martin Bennett. Right. So, uh, as you said, you specialize in Scottish and uh, Northern Canadian musical traditions. And I guess my question is, uh, in, in the world which is so becoming so globalized and music can, at least modern music, can be quite... Um, westernized or you know we have uh, a lot of american and a lot of british influences and it's harder to get more traditional music uh mainstream i guess mm. why do you think it's important that we do preserve these traditional forms and promote them as well yeah i mean it is it's really important and um 
Yeah, you have all, I mean, as you say, you know, I think maybe the word is commercialized, you know, things yeah. have become commercialized and a lot of traditional music has become commercialized and it's all become, you know, a lot of music you hear today is is performed for people to listen to in a commercial aspect, you know, some people to buy the music, people to go to concerts, it's, yeah. it's that kind of professionalization of music, but of course, you know, traditional people are still singing like in communities and, and in you know, just in daily life for singing and playing music. And, and there's no sort of, that motive isn't there. And in the past, especially, you know, there would have been, for example, you know, a lot of music that was um, to do with working, like work songs, for example, walking songs, um, sea shanties, whatever, and, and they had specific functions. Um, but also, you know, you have, you know, if you, it, it's really easy, I think, to say, you know, these kind of small scale traditions aren't important they, they don't really have value because they're not commercial they're not kind of being played on the radio but actually that it's really important to well, most most of what my job is about in terms of research is going and doing field work going and interviewing people asking them about their music about their singing about their instrument playing asking them to play the music recording all that for the archives and it's really easy to think that that's um, because it's already still happening it's happening around us it's happening right. now that it's not important, but actually, if you look at the archive recordings that were made, say in the 50s and 60s, there were lots of people going around doing fieldwork and recording people singing and playing music and, and talking about things, whatever it is. They're so valuable now. They have so much valuable because value, because it's not just some commercial form of the music. Right. This is like yeah. the source material. These are the source singers. Um, but also when they speak about the music, you can get that kind of context of the music as well. Um, I mean, there are so many examples of music that you'll hear. You'll hear all the time that um, their original context was totally different. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard the song Black Betty. I haven't, but... That? um it, it was really fair you know it's been covered millions of times well not millions but a lot <laughs> yeah. uh, ram jam did it in the 80s um and and that was actually originally an african-american work song that was recorded mm -hmm. in the penitentiaries in texas okay uh in like the 60s or 50s 50s or 60s and that became like this mainstream pop song <laughs> but the thing is like if you don't have that kind of original context oh, indeed, like, yeah. the, the history it makes it so much more interesting the music is so much more interesting if you have have that um so yeah i mean preserving i, I mean yeah preserving in terms of recording i think recording people um people's traditional expressions um is is of course it's 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 really interesting it says so much about a way of life a language a culture um beliefs all these things um and and that's actually why i chose the last track is uh this is annie um morrison have i got that right annie morrison johnson johnson sorry annie johnson no worries, from yeah. barra i think um talking about a song called the fairy the fairy song and she explains it in a really nice way. And then she sings the song afterwards. And, you know, it says it says a lot about, you know, the society at the time and the beliefs and, you know, yeah, it puts the whole, the, the piece into context. If you would ask if you were Huru, if you were Huru, Nacht 
You were listening to Fairy Song by Annie Johnson. Well, uh, final question today. Thank you for being so patient. We have a lot. We had a lot to cover and uh, it's been great uh, chatting. I guess the question is, yeah, it's been great. Uh, The question is, uh, how do you think students uh, most, uh, you know, obviously we have a lot of buying power and commercialization and we we do have uh, big platforms in a way with our social media uh, impact and things like that. So how, how are some ways that we can support people or promote people who are producing this traditional music uh, and maybe um, rather than just consuming commercialized music, which obviously is in itself a horrible thing, um, how are some ways that we can um, look at traditional forms of music and, and celebrate those as well? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, commercialization, I mean, it's, it's been going on for a long time. I mean, I wouldn't say it was horrible. It's just uh, it's just the way the way things are. And a lot of traditional musicians today, you know, are, are professional musicians who, who, you know, that's they make their living. And you know what, in the last two years, they have had such a such a difficult time. Oh, I'm sure. You know, yeah. Um, and there's just it's just been awful, really. You know, people who've spent you know a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy on organizing tours, and then they just get cancelled. Um, and you know, really not having a, a massive buffer, um, and really trying to sort of sort of just get by the last you know because of the pandemic has been really really difficult for traditional musicians. So so you know, I, I think um, you know people are you know today. Um, you know, obviously there's music all around us and, you know, go and explore and find out what it is because it's, you know, there's music, you know, people playing music in pubs and sessions and, you know, all over the place in lots of different contexts. And it's, it's yeah, go and find out about it and uh, go and experience it. But also, uh, if you want to support traditional musicians, um, then go and, and find out who they are and, and, and buy their music, you know, and buy it yeah, through their website. Yeah. You know, buy it through their websites, not through Spotify or all these other platforms, because, um, you know, that's then and then the money goes straight to the musicians rather than to yeah. all these various agents, you know. Yeah, of course. Well, it has been lovely. Um, I guess we'll do this at the very end. Uh, if you could just recap the four tracks you've picked, as well as I understand the tradition in the Desert Island Discs is to... Uh, share a book and a luxury as well that you'd have with you. So if you want to do that right now, uh, we can get this wrapped up. Okay, so uh, the first track was Mouth Music, Bratuch Banner. Uh, the second track was Salif Cater, Yamore. The third track was Martin Bennett, Liberation. And the fourth track was Annie Johnson, uh, The Fairy Song. Awesome. And do you have a book at a luxury? Ah, you right, well? yeah. I was trying to think of a book. I found that really, diff- really difficult. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> My first thought was I would I would take the Guinness Book of Records and okay. see if I could see how many you could break. Yeah, how many I could break. <laughs> uh, and then I thought maybe I should get a whittling book, you know, because uh-huh. I'm really into you know whittling with a yeah. pen. And I could get maybe a book of you know various whittling projects. Yeah. Um, plenty of plenty of time. Hopefully there's water. I found that a really difficult question. I've got to say, um, or a book of <laughs> a book of music, you know, a book yeah. of songs. Yeah. Yeah sort of learn you know it'd have to be a big one so presumably I'd have to be on this island for quite a long time 
Uh-huh. Yeah, indeed. I'm not, I don't know the uh, the correct parameters. I'm not sure if they're uh, <laughs> the time limit, you know. Uh, but I, do you have a luxury item as well? Hopefully I do, yeah. Yeah, I would take a sailing boat and I would uh, I would sail good. around the island and explore and then maybe go and find some other islands if I if I got really okay. bored and go okay. fishing. We'll take that. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty good one right there. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Francis, for talking with us today. It was quite lovely. Uh, and we hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Uh, thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. The Gaudi Podcast is a production of Gaudi Media and is written, edited, and hosted by Joshua Pazutapamako. Special thanks to our guest on today's program, Dr. Francis Wilkins. Just a reminder, we're still looking for a co-host. If you have any interest in that position, please contact one of our editors or email our page. Thank you guys for listening, and have a lovely day.